4 this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. Our young people, 6th grade and down, you can be dismissed for Children's Church with Mr. Judson and Mr. Reese. I teased Reese, he must be the Children's Church bouncer today. No, thank the Lord for the well-behaved young people we have in Children's Church. Grateful for those guys taking care of things today. Ephesians chapter 4. And I would like to read down through verse number 16. Ephesians chapter 4, and beginning with verse number 1. Just remember the context of the book. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are the theological foundation, uh, where Paul essentially, the main thing that he upholds is the position that we as believers have in Jesus Christ, our privileges uh, that we have as sons of God. And now, beginning in chapter number 4, he begins to make practical application of that. And notice what he says, Ephesians 4, verse number 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That vocation, that calling in life, is everything that he has just dealt with in detail in the first three chapters. And he says to this church, the church at Ephesus, now walk Uh, in a way that is equal to uh, what God has called you to be, what God has made you. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, and then Paul quotes from or references Psalm 68, a victory psalm about the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, given his prophecy, and we'll say a little bit more about this in a moment. Wherefore he, the psalmist, saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Verse number nine, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth, the lowest places of the earth. Verse 10, he that descended, speaking of Jesus, is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And then notice some of the gifts that he gave to the church. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him, speaking of Christ, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, 
from whom the whole body, that is the body of the church, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Father, I need your help as we look into your word this morning. I thank you for the assurance from Scripture, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst today. This is his church, and he is the Lord of this church. And he, as the Lord, moves in the midst of uh, this light, this candlestick here in this part of the world. I thank you for the assurance of the presence of the Spirit of God, who is the divine teacher, who indwells every believer that is here and helps to illuminate our hearts and minds to uh, the truths of Scripture that uh, you, uh, as the chief shepherd, desire for us to know today. I need your help. I need your strength. And I ask for it. I'm dependent upon you as the human mouthpiece And all of us as listeners are dependent upon you for understanding. And so I ask for that this day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, uh, you uh, come at a unique time. But I would like to say this, not an unprecedented time in a church's life. Uh, Maybe you've heard this. Uh, Some of you who maybe are not here able to be here three times in a week, maybe have just heard a little bit of this, but I announced on the 25th of June, in the Sunday evening service, that God and His will is directing me and my family uh, to resign from the pastorate of Crossroads and move back to Northeast Missouri in His will for a time of uh, Selah, a uh, time of uh, sabbatical, and uh, to regroup as a family after some of the things that we've experienced in the last few years. I will say this in full confidence, that even as God is directing us to make the move that he is, God is also formulating his perfect plans for Crossroads Baptist Church. And let us not forget that. This is his church. I have about four weeks remaining uh, as your pastor before the first Sunday of August, which will officially be my last Sunday uh, as your pastor. And uh, there are many things, I think about what Jesus said and some things that Paul said, there are many things that because of my love for this church, the history that we have, that I desire to say to you. Uh, Thankfully, it's not uh, in the same way as a comic that I saw years ago of a pastor standing in a pulpit. Uh, From a profile perspective, the comic was drawn and you could see out the side window a moving truck. Uh, packed and ready to go. And the pastor, the caption, the pastor said this, there are some things I've been wanting to say for a while. Okay. I want you to know that is not the spirit that is animating my heart. I love you. And realizing I needed to resign was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made. Some might say, how can you love and leave? I guess what I say to that is Paul loved churches he started very dearly and yet at different times left. 
Jesus loved the disciples and left. And I am no Jesus and I am no Paul. But I love you and still in the will of God, he's directing us to leave. I can say this in full confidence and I say this to have as a desire to set your hearts at ease as a flock that in the will of God and God's planning and preparation, we can say with confidence that as this church stays in his will, that he has wonderful things in store for Crossroads Baptist Church. And he has great works he wants this church to do. Our leaving in the will of God does not mean the termination of a relationship. I thought about this even this morning as I was getting ready. And that is that our New Testament, especially the epistles, we have some wonderful epistles that are rich in New Testament doctrine and practice that were letters that Paul wrote back to churches that he had started and then left in the will of God. I think about Philippians. I think about Ephesians. I think about even Corinth. Thank the Lord that Crossroads Baptist Church is not a Corinth. Now let me say this. You have that potential. Any church has that potential. And so be warned and be cautious. But there are many things I'd like to say. And so I'm praying and I would ask that you pray specifically with me over the next several weeks for God's direction that I would preach those things that the chief shepherd wants this flock to know. As we prepare for this transition, as you do, let me encourage you to be praying every day in your homes for God's watch care over the church, for God's man, wherever he is, whoever he is, to be in preparation for the call that he would receive to consider becoming the next pastor of Crossroads Baptist Church. That being said... The Lord's drawn my heart for this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, and then Lord willing, uh, time permitting, we'll be back here this evening looking at the passage from another unique perspective. But I would like to preach a message this morning, and I may move quickly over some points, but I want you to be thinking about this, a church that is walking worthy of the vocation it's been called to. A church walking worthy. Notice if you would again the first two verses or the first verse of chapter number four. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, Paul saying this because he's in prison when he's writing it and yet understanding that in the sovereignty of God he is there in God's plan. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, I beg you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. The you and the ye's that Paul uses here are plural pronouns. A lot of times we read these epistles and we think individual application. And yet Paul is addressing not an individual, he is addressing a local church. So when he says, I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, he is addressing the church at Ephesus. And by application, we can say that the Spirit of God is addressing Crossroads Baptist Church to be a church that walks worthy of the vocation to which it has been called. As we anticipate the next several weeks and months, I'm sure that many of you have questions in your mind about the future of Crossroads Baptist Church. Let me just say this, the Lord already knows it. 
and so we can trust him. How long will you have to wait for a new pastor? What will he be like? Will I like him? Some of you might even have questions about the one standing in front of you now. How will the church do? What kind of changes will we experience? Can I say to you this morning that I believe that those questions in a very real sense need to be secondary questions? Taking Paul's words in chapter 4 and verse number 1, a primary question needs to be this. Are we as a church walking worthy of God's call on our life? Are we walking worthy? And can I say this, if Crossroads Baptist Church is walking worthy of the vocation that it's been called to, the calling of God on it, if Crossroads Baptist Church is, then everything else will fall into line. A church that is walking worthy will know and experience God's best. And I want you to lay hold of that in faith this morning. Now let me just say this about what it means to walk worthy. Walking worthy is not based upon the tenure of believers in the church. It's not based on the fact that there are people in this church that have been saved longer than your pastor has been alive. I've met some people who have been saved a very long time who are not spiritual and not mature. It's not based, now praise God for the mature believers that are here But walking worthy is not based on the tenure of believers. Walking worthy is not based on the financial health or stability of a church. Do you remember there was a church, the church of Laodicea, that said, we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And yet Jesus said to them, you're poor and miserable and blind and naked. And so a church that is walking worthy of God's calling on it is not a church that is necessarily marked by financial health. In fact, one of the most model New Testament churches recorded in the scripture was a very poor church. Walking worthy as a church is not based upon a church's history or reputation. We have a great history, praise God. Thirteen years, lives changed, missionaries sent to the field, churches planted, churches about to be planted. God has done some wonderful things in the past 13 years, but I want to say this. He wants to do even greater things in the next 13 years. Jesus said to another church in Revelation, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. And so it's not the history of a church or the reputation of a church. Some churches are known for some things. And I'm not going to catalog those, but that's not what makes a church a church that is walking worthy. The statement that Paul uses here when he tells the church at Ephesus to walk worthy of the vocation they've been called to, that idea is this, of walk with equal weight to what God has called you to be and what God has made you. Now that takes us back to the first three chapters where Paul talks about the privileges that a believer has. Those that trust Christ as Savior, they're adopted into the family of God. What a privilege that is. 
Let me say to every born-again child of God that sits in this room today, you are adopted into God's family. That is irrevocable. Nothing can ever reverse that. You are God's child. Okay. And you need to walk worthy of that in this old world. Walk with equal weight, okay, in a way that is fitting with your position as an adopted child of God. Believers have been given great spiritual abundance. Paul talks in chapter number one about how the Lord has abounded unto us in wisdom and given us this eternal inheritance, an inheritance that will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us. He talks about supernatural ability, power that has been given to the believer. He talks about the blessing that we have of being accepted in the beloved. Society may reject you, family may reject you, a workplace may reject you, some social organization may reject you, but once you're in the family of God, you are accepted in Jesus Christ and will never be rejected. Okay. There's wonderful assurance. We've been given the Spirit of God to live inside of us. We've been sealed. We have the assurance that we're the child of God. We have the privilege also of access you don't have to go through a priest to get to the throne of God. You don't. I remember a guy calling several years ago, a, a phone salesman or technician, and when he found out he was talking to the pastor, we were having some issues here. He asked me to pray for him. He said, because I know as a pastor, you got an inside track with God. I said, nah. I said, if you're a born-again child of God, you have as much access to the presence of God as any preacher does. And so the privilege of access. And so Paul, when he says, walk worthy of the vocation, he said, you're an adopted child of God. Now walk in this old world worthy of that in a way that is equal to that. You have this great spiritual eternal abundance, this inheritance, and walk like a child of God in this old world. Walk in light of your inheritance. Walk in light of the supernatural ability that you have. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power at your disposal and mine to live victoriously in this old world. And Paul says, now walk like that. In your daily life, walk like that. Walk as one who's accepted in the family of God. Walk as one who has assurance of eternal life. Walk as one who has access to the very presence of God because you do. So what does it look like then to walk worthy? How is that accomplished? And especially when you think about it from the standpoint, not just as an individual believer, but as a church. How does Crossroads Baptist Church walk worthy of all of these privileges that God has called the believer to? In this old world, how do you do that? How is it accomplished? And Paul answers that question. Notice if you would. I'm going to read verse number 1 and go right into verse number 2. Notice it. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Answering the question, how do you do it? With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. And just a little bit of our time this morning together, and I'm going to have to already, I can tell you this, pass over some things. But I want you to notice, first of all, if Crossroads Baptist Church is going to walk worthy so you can be assured of having God's bless, best, number one, you need to do it with humility. Humility. This is, this is striking to me. Here is this mature church 
that has all of these privileges. Here is this wonderful church that has all these privileges. And the first thing Paul says, if you're going to walk worthy, the first mark of a church that walks worthy is its humility. Lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. With all lowliness, it's the idea of complete humility. I don't need to go into a bunch of detail. I think we almost instinctively know, as spirit-filled believers, the difference between pride and humility. But he says, with all lowliness, do you know that in the first century, both in the Greek language and in the Latin language, and in those cultures and societies, humility was considered a vice, not a virtue. It was considered the characteristic of a slave. And yet, we see as we look at Scripture, that it became one of the prevailing characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled Himself and became obedient to the death of the cross. Lowliness, the idea of the word is to bring ourselves down to a level that is true in the sight of God. Not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And then Paul uses the word meekness. The word meekness is used of the Lord Jesus Christ both in one of Paul's Corinthian epistles as well as in Matthew chapter number 11. Jesus said of himself, I am meek and lowly of heart. The word meek or meekness means gentleness. It means the complete absence of harshness. Let me just say this. Harshness has no place in the life of the child of God. No place. Gentleness, meekness, like Jesus. Lowliness, humility. It's how a church walks worthy. And then Paul uses the word long-suffering. Uh, the Greek word literally means a long fuse. In other words, it just keeps and never activates the dynamite. Long suffering as it relates to other people. And then he uses the word forbearing one another in love. It means to put up with one another. How do you do it? In love. It's the first of three times in these 16 verses that Paul puts that preposition in love. Forbear one another in love. Down in verse number 15, speak the truth in love. Down in verse number 16, the body edifies itself in love. You extract love from Crossroads Baptist Church and this church becomes hopeless. Oh, but you keep love in its primary place, biblical love in its primary place, and learn to forbear, to put up with each other. I think about a puppy and an adult dog. Have you ever seen videos of a little puppy giving an old dog fit? Jerking on its ear, jumping on its back, pulling on its tail. And that old dog just sits there and takes it, and takes it. Puts up with it. Puts up with it. I'm not sure what Loretta's in for at our house when Eliza gets a little bigger. Ears getting tugged on, tail getting pulled. That old dog just takes it. That's forbearing. Let me encourage you as a church, as you seek to walk worthy, 
of the vocation that God has called you to. Don't allow yourselves to develop an entitlement mentality. And by that I mean this. We are a really good church. We're entitled to a certain kind of pastor. Listen, if you put up with me for 13 years, you can put up with anybody. Now, we're talking about God's called man. Don't put an age on it. Do you remember how old Jesus was when he was the good shepherd and the chief shepherd? He died at 33. David was in his 30s when he became king of Israel and united the nation. Let God choose the pastor. Don't get an entitlement mentality or an exclusivity to your thinking and elitism. Paul warns about that. He warns about an entitlement mentality, getting an exclusive mindset and elitism. Pursue humility. Lowliness of mind. Meekness, both before each other and before the world. Keep in mind that any privilege that you have as a child of God, I don't care how long you've been saved. You maybe have been saved for five decades, but I want you to understand something. The position that you have as a believer is no better than the position of the person who's been saved the least amount of time in this room this morning. That person is as much, somebody's been saved just a week, two weeks, three weeks, a few months. They are as much a child of God and have as much worth of access into the presence of God as the one who's been saved longer than I've been alive. And the surest, listen, the surest path to the devil getting in the details here at this church is for pride to get in. And for an exclusive elitist mentality to develop. Oh, stay humble before each other, before the world. It'll empower your witnessing to acknowledge that all these wonderful privileges that Paul talks about in the first three chapters, that any lost man outside the walls of this church, he has the potential for those same privileges to be his too. Motivates us, doesn't it? But I want you to notice a second mark of a church that is walking worthy of all the privileges that God has called it to. Not only humility, but unity. Unity. Verse number three, coming right out of what Paul says about humility, growing out of that humility, then Paul begins to speak about unity. Endeavoring, verse number three, the word endeavoring means to make every effort and to do so with speed. To do so quickly. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Folks, it's no accident that this is the order that God gives. Humility is first, and unity follows humility. Where there is disunity, go back to step one. Because only by pride comes contention. Humility leads to unity. It's God's order. But where there's disunity, trace down the pride. And Paul says much about unity here. We are to work, to be diligent. I notice this as well. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say that we are to endeavor to make peace. 
What's the word Paul uses? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Keeping and making are two different things. Making means you institute it. Let me tell you something. Nobody in this church has the ability to institute peace at Crossroads Baptist Church. Nobody except the one you can't see. And that's the Spirit of God. We are to endeavor to keep, to maintain the peace that only God can institute. Does that make sense to you? That was a challenge to me. It was a challenge to me. When a man tries to make peace, he will fault into manipulation or force, okay, compulsion, conformity. But unity, biblical unity, is something that really follows the pattern of what Paul talks about back in chapter number 2. Notice, if you would, chapter 2 and verse number 14. Let's begin in verse number 13. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was, one of the things he was talking about was the disparity between Jew and Gentile. Enemies having nothing to do with each other. Gentiles hated Jews. Jews hated Gentiles. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs and vice versa, names back and forth. And yet, get this, through the work of the cross, a pathway was made that those who before had the greatest animosity towards each other could be brought together in sweet unity. How is that accomplished? Verse number 13, but now in Christ Jesus, we who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our what? Peace who hath made both, that is, Jew and Gentile, one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Remember that the Jews had at their temple in Jerusalem a barrier that had a sign on it that if a Gentile crossed that barrier, he could be killed right there on the temple grounds. That wall of partition... But Jesus, through his cross, as it relates to access to God, has broken down that middle wall of partition, verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, that is Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace. So that in the local church, southerners can go to church with northerners. The old can go to church with the young. The rich can go to church with the poor. One skin color can go to church with another skin color. And everybody is on equal ground at the foot of the cross that made peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now, let me just say this about Unity is patterned by Christ. Peace is a oneness that he provides. By the way, peace is not cheap. We want the kind of peace the cross produces. Unity also, as it relates to what Paul is talking about, is not sameness. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of information in the New Testament, first century historical context, that kept 
Jews from making Gentiles Jews. Can I get an amen there? There are going to be... How many of you notice that there are people that go to this church that have different preferences about things than you do? I like your smiles. They're really encouraging right now. Maybe some dress standards. A little variation music thoughts. Do you want to know something? That doesn't surprise God. Different backgrounds? The point was not to make Gentiles become Jews. As a matter of fact, Paul and Peter, when he got things squared away, took a strong stand against that. Okay? The point is unity out of diversity. What happens to a football team if everybody's the quarterback? What happens to a football team if everybody's a linebacker? You got nobody protecting the quarterback. A team is unity with diversity. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing either. What about baseball if everybody was a pitcher? Pitchers are notoriously poor hitters. The National League figured that out. and finally came up with a designated hitter recently. You got to have both. What if a basketball team was all seven footers? <laughs> Who's going to drive the point? You switch it around. What if everybody was a 5'11 point guard? You see what I'm saying? Diversity is part of what God uses to bring about unity. It's the Spirit of God. And I think about the metaphors that the Apostle Paul uses here, the metaphor of a building, all the different parts, the metaphor of a body, all the different parts working together, the metaphor of a family. So a church that is walking worthy is a church that is marked by humility, a church that is marked by unity. It's a church thirdly, and I'm watching the time here, but it's a church that is marked thirdly by ministry. Notice, if you would, in chapter number 4, I want to jump down into the middle of this next section here, and I want you to notice, if you would, verse number 11 and 12. And he, talking about the Lord Jesus, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, in this context here, the Apostle Paul is talking about ministry leadership gifts, those who are essentially involved in the proclamation of the word. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, the Apostle Paul gives lists of other gifts that are available to every believer in the local church. But the point I want us to notice in verse 11 is that he gave some, 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 some. In other words, not everybody's gifted the same way. But every gift matters. Notice, if you would, verse number 12. He gave some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. The idea is there to do the work of the ministry. God uses the pastor, teacher, for the perfecting of the saints. That's the membership of a church, so that the church members are doing the work of the what? Ministry. A church that is walking worthy is a church that's doing ministry. 
the word ministry here is the same word from which we get our word deacon. It's diakonos. It literally means through the dust. Getting dirty to meet the needs of other people. Getting dirty to meet the needs of other people. And then what's the outcome of that? The goal is, verse number 12, the last statement, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The meaning of ministry here means to meet the needs of others. Get this, out of the riches of Christ and the security of your position in Him. My mind, as I was thinking about that statement right there, immediately goes to John chapter number 13. John chapter 13, the upper room, Jesus lays aside His garments, girds Himself with a towel, and washes the disciples' feet. He does the lowliest form of servant service that Jewish masters would only have Gentile slaves perform. They would not have even a Jewish indentured servant wash the feet of a guest that came to their house. That was filthy work they saved only for a Gentile. And yet, in John 13, the incarnate God laid aside His garments and washed the feet of men who were about to forsake him. One who would soon deny him. Another, Judas hadn't left yet, another who would betray him. He washed their feet. But if you read the early part of John chapter number 13, the scripture clearly says this, that Jesus knowing who he was and where he was going, You see, he was secure in the knowledge of who he was and he was secure in God's plan and that liberated him, if I can say it that way, to do the lowliest service. Let me tell you something. When you recognize who you are as a born-again, blood-bought child of God, having access to the riches of heaven, you are joint heir with Jesus Christ. Nothing can rescind that. You are secure as a child of God permanently, eternally indwelt by the Spirit of God. Nothing can change that. If you view it like you should biblically, it liberates you to be willing to minister to others. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Whatever the need is. Well, there's, I'll maybe say more about this tonight. But you know what we need when we think about a church that's walking worthy so that it can have God's best? We think about humility. We think about unity. We think about ministry. You know what a church needs? A church needs a bunch of towels, not bibs. I'm grateful for the heart that this church has had over the years for preaching and teaching. And I will tell you, I will tell you, I've preached some pretty poor messages over the years. My dad calls them laying rotten eggs. I remember as a kid going home some Sunday afternoons and dad would say, well, that one didn't get off the ground. Now, I'm glad that his word does not return void. And it's, it's a, an encouragement and a challenge and a conviction that there have been times when a message has been preached and I just walked away from it feeling very discouraged about it. And then you would hear how God had taken that message and he had done his work in spite of the human instrument. We need towels. 
this church, not bibs. Don't become a believer that's, uh, I heard one guy say this years ago, that uh, is like a bullfrog Christian. Just hopping around from church to church saying, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. Invest your life in people. Verse number 14 tells us another mark of a church. And there's, there's much I'm passing over here. But verse number 14, the reason that a church needs to be growing, and I'm going to talk more about this this evening, is because when a church is growing like it should, verse number 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and go perfect man into the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. But the idea of verse number 14 is when verse 13, when we're doing what we should be as it relates to verse number 13, pursuing Christ, growing in Christ, helping each other grow in Christ, one of the good results of that is that we henceforth are no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. In other words, when we're grown like we should be and we got our focus on Christ like it should be, it will result in purity. Purity is a mark of a church that's walking worthy. You can see more about purity picking up verse number 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. And Paul goes on to, to give tremendous instruction about the importance of purity in a church. And a fifth mark, and I'm just moving quickly over these to come to a conclusion. A fifth mark of a church that walks worthy so that it can experience God's best is a church that has the right priority. And I'll say more about this tonight, but let me just say that the right priority really just kind of sums everything up, and that is to love others and to just keep learning Jesus. To just keep learning Christ. And, And growing up into Him, the fullness of Christ, and growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. Loving others and loving Jesus learning Christ, giving him the preeminence. And when he has given the preeminence, purity and ministry and humility and unity, all of these other marks of a church that walks worthy. I'm going to close with two illustrations. God is using little Eliza uh, to teach. I'm really glad God made babies cute. Because that is the redeeming factor when you're changing a diaper at three in the morning. And when she's spitting up and making messes, it's a good thing. And, and you just look at a little baby, and you just can't help but love that little one. I just look at that little girl, I'm like, and she opens her big, dark blue eyes. She makes all these cute little faces, and, and I'm like, okay, I'll change another messy diaper. Let me say something about new believers, and even some old believers. They make messes. But I need to understand, you need to understand, we need to remember that in a local church, we're all tied in together. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about that in verse number 16. From whom, that is out of Christ, the whole body, the church, is fitly joined together and compacted. It's the idea of woven or stitched together. But notice how Jesus holds a church together. He does so by that which every joint supplieth. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part, 
Jesus grows a church. He makes increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. In other words, Jesus' plan is to use you to strengthen and to grow this church. And that's why this church needs humility. That's why a church, if it's going to get God's best and walk worthy, it needs unity. It needs ministry. You need each other. And even the parts that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter number 14 aren't all that cute. Thank God babies are cute. Let me tell you something. When you have a heart of love like Christ does for a new believer, a believer that's not like you, it'll help you come alongside of them and clean up their mess. Do you know why redwoods, one of the reasons they're so strong? These massive trees out in the Pacific Northwest. Do you know a redwood that was standing all by itself wouldn't stand a chance in high winds? Do you know why redwoods are so strong? Because underground, their roots intertwine with each other. So that when the winds and the storms come, they're able to stand individually because they are tied together corporately. And a church that walks worthy is a church that recognizes that. God's tied us together. And he uses a northerner to be an encouragement to a southerner. To come alongside of a brother who's not from the same background as you are. Maybe he doesn't have the same preferences that you do. And yet you come together in unity and humility for the work of the ministry with the priority of Christ-likeness for every part. And in the end, the Lord of the church is glorified. Father, I pray that as we conclude this service this morning, that our hearts have been calibrated more specifically to the New Testament. Lord, I know there's a full passage of scripture and we only got a little bit of the tip of the iceberg of it. And Lord, I'm glad that we'll be able to be back in Ephesians 4 and these 16 verses from another perspective this evening. Lord, I pray that you would burn indelibly in our hearts as a church these five marks of a church that walks worthy. And help Crossroads Baptist Church corporately to acknowledge and to recognize that when these marks of a church that walks worthy are present, then they can, in faith, expect God's best as it relates to their future, as it relates to their continued health. Lord, if there's one here this morning who has never become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that even before they leave today, that they would seek me out or seek one of our folks out here and say, listen, I'm not even sure I'm a child of God. I'm not even sure I'm saved. No, I'm going to heaven. Can we talk about that? Lord, we would love nothing more than to be able to help point someone to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today. I pray primarily this morning, though, for this church as we think about the future and our need to be prepared and to have a New Testament, a right perspective, as we think about the transition days are ahead, 
I thank you that you are the good shepherd. You gave your life for the sheep, and you're the good shepherd that causes your sheep to lie down in green pastures, and you lead them by still waters, and you restore souls, and you lead in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And I thank you that you have paths that you've already determined that you want this church to walk in in the future. And so may Crossroads Baptist Church be a church that walks worthy so that it'll be sensitive to the direction of the shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name.